Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. We have a great guest for you today. It's improviser and actor from Edmonton and Vancouver, Amy Shostak. We have a really great convo, but before we get to that, let's get a little business out of the way. This is the last interview episode before the holidays. Next week, we're going to be doing a Thanksgiving episode, then it'll be three weeks of mini-episodes, a Christmas episode, and then we'll take a week off because we got to. New episodes with guests will come back the first week of January. We'll still be releasing newsletters every Monday, and the festival blogs will go up the 1st of December and January, so be on the lookout for that on our website, thereitispod.com. I couldn't be more thrilled that Amy is our last interview of the year. We had a really great talk about improv, the responsibilities she took on when she was an artistic director at the Rapid Fire Theater in Edmonton, and she says about the way all you Americans who love Canadians want to hear. So if you're playing at home, every time you hear her do that, take a sip of your Labatt Blue. Well, let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Amy Shostak. Thanks so much for being here. You're a rock star in the improv world, so it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. What a treat. Oh, for sure, for sure. So from my research, uh, Mm. it looks like you at least started at Rapid Fire in 2002, uh, which was, what, your first year in college? Uh, I was my first year, yeah, in college. Yeah, I just finished high school, and... um, Rapid Fire Theater had a very thin cast and they were like, yeah, let's take a bunch of people that are taking workshops. So I got to start doing shows Friday and Saturday nights. Um, I had only been improvising for like a year or two before that. And yeah, that was the start of the whole thing. Wow. Okay. What drew you to improv a year or two before that? Well, I had a very encouraging high school drama teacher named Lynette. Uh, She's still teaching to this day in Edmonton. And um, I was in drama class, but I was always like the shy, the shy kid. I would be in the chorus of a musical. I'd always be like doing a box step or like polishing a banister in the background. (laughs) Um, And she was like, I think you should be like the fourth member of the improv team. Like we need one more person. I think you'd be great. And at that point I had been like watching a lot of improv. My friends and I would go see rapid fire theater on the weekends. And so, yeah, I was like, sure, I'll try it. But I was absolutely terrified and still very shy. And so, yeah, I I feel like improv is, um, yeah, one of the things in obviously my whole life that's made me more confident and, um, yeah, just more, more social as a person. That's really awesome. Thank you, Lynette, for for that (laughs) suggestion, because... Thanks, Lynette. (laughs) You've inspired a lot of people along the way in your improv journey, and Hmm. it's really great to hear you say that 
doing improv has helped you come out of your shell and, and gain confidence. That's super cool. Are there specific things that you can point to improv giving you confidence in? I mean, I remember feeling so terrified of starting scenes, of being mm. the first person on stage and not having anyone there with me. And I think through just like will and grit, uh, you you know, you do that over and over again and you suddenly, you know, come to the point where you're like, oh, actually, it's not that bad. It's OK to be on stage alone. I do know how to start a scene. And and I feel like that's kind of the same with like a conversation in real life. It's like you get more and more comfortable just taking a chance and, you know, saying something or saying something yeah. that's on your mind. And and so, yeah, I think for me, yeah, that's been a huge learning through improv is just to be like, oh, I'll just I'll just ask the question or I'll say the thing. Oh, that's super cool. When you started at Rapid Fire, like you said, that was a year or two in and it's college. Was there a different style of improv that you were doing at Rapid Fire than from what you did in high school? Was high school like maybe more short form? Yeah. So um, Rapid Fire at the time, they used to run a high school theater sports tournament. And so I was pretty like steeped in short form and theater sports from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and then a couple years into improvising um, at Rapid Fire doing theater sports, uh, we got to start doing the long form show on Saturday nights, which was always like an experimental long form show because uh -huh. at the time, you know, our, our artistic director, Jacob, he had traveled a bit he had been to Europe, he had been to the States, and he was coming back with these long form ideas that that just kind of weren't existing really in Canada. Um, and I think there's an interesting style thing that happened in Canada, especially in the early 2000s, where long form was very organic and also very storytelling focused. Um, and so a lot of the long forms that we did were really narrative focused, narrative heavy, you know, maybe like an improvised movie or an improvised genre piece um and so yeah i got to got to try that out as well um a few years into my uh yeah improv training okay cool how mm -hmm. great was it to be able to start improv so early in life pretty great <laughs> i mean i feel like uh like as i mentioned rapid fire has the theater sports tournament for um youth and there's also something in canada called the canadian improv games which is a national organization that does improv in um, junior high schools, as we call them, and high schools, and uh, and so yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of improvisers here have come up through those programs, and so it's pretty remarkable when you you know someone's on a improv team when they're in university or they they they're training at a school and they're on a team. And they've actually already like they're like I've been improvising for eight years <laughs> since I was like twelve, uh, uh -huh. and you're like uh, okay you're so talented, um, <laughs> so it's it's pretty cool yeah, um, but I also think with that comes, um, you know as the more you improvise sometimes you you have expectations of what improv is and so sometimes, uh -huh. you know you might be someone who's been improvising since they were twelve but then you get a little bit ingrained in like the way to do it or the way you think it should be done. And so, yeah, I think the constant challenge for everyone, no matter what time they start improvising, is to just be open to new ways and new ideas and, and try all the stuff. Right. I think what I've gauged from people who started out doing short form is they are really adaptable to 
different styles as a, and also different forms as well. Like it, it's, it's, I, I don't know what it is about short form, but it, it just seems to really get the mechanics and also the fundamentals down for a lot of people. It, it's, it's great to see, honestly. Mm, yeah, I remember when I when I started improvising, I just I couldn't wait to do long form. I just felt like short form was just, you know, the annoying little brother of of long form. And uh, and now that that I have got to do both so much, I, I really believe that they're all kind of the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of the same. It's like, can you do can you do a scene? You know, in a long form, we might be trying to like find the game of the scene and and build on mm-hmm. that and and take it somewhere, but if you can't do that in the first scene, then you're you're not going to be able to maybe sustain the long form or f- figure it out. And with short form, you know, can we look at the variety that we need in the show? Do we have a good sense of what we've done and a good sense of what we should do to like surprise the other to mix it up? I think those skills are all very um, transferable. So yeah. Um, yeah, I always say there's no hierarchy of style in improv. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a, a short form hater uh, by any stretch. <laughs> I, I I have heard of, of I've heard some big name people even hate on short form. Sure. Um, and of course, like any style can maybe not be as strong as as others. It's been, and it's just because of an approach, but it, it doesn't make that whole form uh, uh, lose merit or anything like that. And I I just. I just don't see it that way. It's just whether or not you want to do it, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I always think anyone who blames the format is missing the point. <laughs> right, totally. It's like if you're if you're a great improviser who can be adaptable and be curious about everything, you can kind of do anything that you want to yeah. do. Um, so, you know, I get it. It's like people have preferences. Absolutely. There's no reason sure. why you have to do long form or you have to do short form. But I just, yeah, I'm just like, I don't know. I've really come back to short form and been like, this is so fun. I love it right. now. I'm, I'm, I'm back in. <laughs> for, oh yeah. For all oh, the for years sure. that I was like out, I'm, I'm back in. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just feel like short form gets a bad rap from people if they, Maybe they have just seen short form where people were being pithy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so they just blame all short form. But that's just not the truth. You know, like maybe those people who did it were, you know, hacky or something. But I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you can't blame that on all of short form because we've all seen whose line is it anyway. We know that it can be great. (laughs) I, when you mentioned, people who said they were 12 when they started that kind of boggles my mind in a good way. I, I think it's great. All of the different things that people could do. But when I was 12 years old, I don't even know if I had heard of whose lines it anyway yet. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, the options were sports or, uh, music. <laughs> those were the extracurricular activity options mm-hmm. and if you didn't want to do either of those then it's like all right well i guess you're just going to be at home then <laughs> read yeah uh, you know <laughs> like you didn't have a ton of other options mm-hmm. yeah well it's it's really interesting because i think um you know one thing with with children is that they 
um, well, maybe at 12, not so much, but when they're younger, <laughs> they're obviously really good improvisers. They're really good at imagining and, um, not judging themselves and just kind of going with it. And uh -huh. then I think as you get older, you know, more of those social norms make you more afraid to try things. And, and so sometimes you'll, yeah, work with a group, um, in grade seven. So like 12 year olds who are incredible, who are so confident, who are ready to jump in and do anything. And then you'll work with them like three years later and they'll be kind of in that receding mm. phase where they're like, I don't want to go. Like, I don't want to look, make, look silly or be embarrassed right. or whatever. Oh, the teenage years are tough. They are, they are. And so it's super interesting. I think, you know, for folks who maybe start improvising a little bit when they're a little older, they bring a lot of their experience to their improvisation. And I think, I don't know. I don't think there's necessarily a, an answer there. I, I work every week with a group of um, 55 plus improvisers, um, some of whom are in their, you know, 70s and 80s. And they're amazing. <laughs> like some, some of them is their first time improvising, but they, um, they just don't, they don't care. You yeah. know, they're just like, I'm at a point in my life where I don't care what other people think. And it's so, they're so great. And, and so mm -hmm. I really think, you know, all we do in improv is to strip away fear. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Fear of failure, fear of being embarrassed, fear of saying something we didn't know was in us. Mm -hmm. And so for for older folks it's pretty amazing when they're just like yeah i don't <laughs> like i'm not afraid this is imaginary this is make-believe i've been through so much stuff in my life i'm just able to go for it right um so yeah i don't know i think it is incredible when people can start improvising when they're 12 and also that it's never too late oh yeah yeah i i i heard there's a, a there's an old friend of mine who's I believe still in his 60s, but he might be in his 70s now, who started doing improv in his 60s. And I remember after something, I can't remember if it was a workshop or what, but he was like, uh, I started too late. And it's like, you started at just the right time. Like, there, there is no too late or too soon. <laughs> it's a, mm -hmm. When you want to start doing it, it's the right time to start doing it. And uh, even if, I'll, I'll even say if somebody thinks about doing it for a few years, uh, before they feel confident enough to try it, they still started at the right time, you know, mm -hmm. like just start when it, when you want to start, <laughs> there's no rules to this. Totally. And I think that, you know, every person is individual and, and growth is individual. And, and I know for myself, like when I started improvising, it felt like everything was a new, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it was my first show. And then, oh, it's my first note session. And everything <laughs> is this new, like magical thing when you get to have all these firsts. Um, mm -hmm. And then when you improvise for a while, you realize there are, there are those like growth spurts and then there are also plateaus. Yeah. And those plateaus are the points often when people, you know, decide to step back or quit or pursue mm -hmm. something else, which is fair, but also getting comfortable on that journey and being like, I'm in a plateau. What are some things I can do to, you know, mix it up, get out of the plateau or, um, or take a break or whatever. And I think, right. um, yeah, that's, that's a journey. <laughs> that's something <laughs> for sure. After college, speaking of journey, mm -hmm. you start working at rapid fire 
and um, you're an assistant artistic director at this point. And you were that mm -hmm. for a few years, and then you were the artistic director for several years. Um, what, when you started that, what was, because that was, you know, we're talking 2007. And mm -hmm. so theaters, there, aren't, there hadn't been a ton by that point. I mean, I think in 2007, there was, of course, I.O., Groundlings, uh, Second City. Of course, you know about Second City in, in Canada. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess uh, UCB had been going for a few years at this point, but big theaters wasn't as commonplace as it is now. Uh, mm -hmm. Having an artistic director uh isn't wasn't as common just because there are only as many theaters as there were there are only as many artistic directors as there were theaters so what did you draw from what could you draw from to sort of have an approach and and have uh, an end goal maybe not end goal but have a have a purpose in the role mm. you know i felt super lucky um edmonton is a city of about a million people so it's it's small-ish um, for Canada, it's medium-ish, but for the States, it's small. Um, and it's also a university town. So a lot of improvisers kind of, you know, or a lot of yeah. people trying improv um, yeah. through the university. And and so, um, yeah, it, I felt so lucky to have this space where, you know, we had a theater that we rented. We didn't own a, a theater. Actually, Rapid Fire is just now um hopefully getting a theater of their own that um they'll own which is super exciting um and uh, yeah rapid fire started in i think ah, what year was it i'm not sure but anyway they're i think it's their 36th or 37th season so you know rapid wow. fire has been around for a lot, lot of those right yeah like i think they started 86 or 88 or something um so yeah so it you know rapid fire did have a long legacy and i luckily had some really great previous artistic directors that even though they were off in other parts of the world like patty styles who now lives in australia or kevin galise who used to be the ad at dad's um garage in atlanta you know i could still reach out to them and be like what is happening like can you help me whenever i had a crisis or whatever and i really really drew upon them a lot um but I, you know, I came to the role, I'd say reluctantly. <laughs> it was kind of like Kevin got the job at Dad's Garage Theater in Atlanta. And it was like, we need someone. And it, originally it was like an interim position. And then it kind of just, I continued to do it. And I, it was really like learning on the fly. Like I, I had no administrative experience. I had no experience with grant writing, no experience with budgets. Um, but our general manager was super supportive and the board was super supportive. And I was able just to kind of learn on the fly and yeah. Um, also pull from other theater companies in the city. Edmonton has a really great theater scene, believe it or mm -hmm. not. I know it's like, it's kind of like the Austin, Texas of um, of Canada. It's like it's okay, in a cool. very very conservative province, but um, it's a very like liberal place. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so we got a lot of cities like that. Here yeah, America. yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so um, so there was lots of other theater um, artists that could also help me <laughs> learn how to, uh, yeah, do all that adulting that I wasn't quite prepared for um, as a as a new arts administrator. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And as an artistic director, what was, I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, the, the grant writing and, and that stuff was new. 
Um, when it came to the direction of the theater, uh, did you have to go a whole new direction or is it sort of keeping the ship steady when it came to perspective? So my approach was always that growth isn't always the goal. We don't always need more shows. We don't always need more money. I really just tried to focus on understanding how people in the ensemble felt, what they needed to make their work satisfying, and how we could become kind of closer and more aligned as an ensemble in terms of like pulling in the same direction. Like what mm -hmm. are our collective goals? Mm -hmm. And I spent probably like the first couple of years just on that because i was like that's something i felt that just maybe hadn't had as much focus in the past um and also trying to build in structures that kind of support the ensemble like writing more anti-harassment policies or like building out you know how how do people get into the ensemble is it auditions is it they're inviting your friends what is the process and at that time in like whenever that was 2006 2000 no 2009 um yeah, there all those processes just kind of hadn't built, been built built out. So that was kind of my approach. And then we lost our theater, our uh, our space um, got redeveloped, and so we got kind of kicked out for a few years. And so we oh. moved um, across the city to a different arts venue, and mm. that was a big transition. And that took up oh for sure. Yeah, a lot of to my go brain across power. the city <laughs> anywhere. Yeah, I mean people get really used to going to one spot and when you have to completely change your your routine on how you're getting there that's that's a big change for everyone for sure and we the good thing was that we got to expand a lot we got to add more shows we got to run we added a festival we got to um yeah just kind of grow our programming um but yeah that was a really big transition yeah changing theaters and being the person that was like i'm gonna wear this whether it works or not <laughs> <laughs> for sure when you are still there, because uh, you were there like 14 years, mm -hmm. when it comes to what people need so that they feel like they have what they need to perform and, and uh, to be a part of the community, what is it you look for in order to help them with that? Like, how do you do that, essentially, I guess? Um, we just like set up. I mean, it's not hard we just set up like meetings a couple times a year with every performer mm -hmm. to like check in and we had like a two-way feedback kind of process and that just hadn't been done and so there mm -hmm. was a lot of like you know it would be like we do a note session everyone would go to the bar and then everyone would kind of like have a side conversation about what they really thought <laughs> yeah which and makes just... it so hard <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. like when someone asks you what you feel and then you tell them one thing and then you go to the bar and like here's how i really feel it's like you're not helping the communication process totally and i <laughs> i think that's still i mean I, I can't say that i was the person who got rid of that because i'm sure that was still happening i know it was still happening but just mm -hmm. trying to provide more opportunities for people to like um, yeah, share their thoughts in an open way, hopefully. And then secondly, really trying to um, focus on development and giving people opportunities, like being like, yeah. hey, I see you. I think you should direct a show. Like, and we, we created this um, experimental festival called Bonfire, which is mm -hmm, supposed to mm -hmm. be like improv ideas that maybe we haven't tried before at, as the ensemble or we've maybe we've seen somewhere else or maybe we've just dreamt them up and they're absolutely bonkers and that show was like a great or that festival was a great opportunity to be like okay yeah there's um someone who's been improvising for like six months in our ensemble let's get them to direct a show 
Um, uh-huh. And another thing that we did in our note sessions is that we had, um, say we, we'd have an improviser, like a junior improviser who would give notes to the senior improvisers. Um, so just trying to like level that kind of implied hierarchy oh, by being yeah. like, yeah, like there's, you know, someone um, maybe who has less experience, but they're, they might see different things than we see. And so right. just trying to make that like, make that common and make that normal in our group to be like, yeah, anyone can share thoughts, anyone can give notes. Oh, that's super cool. <laughs> How does that play into having representation on stage? Of course, this is something that I think everyone is having to have a reckoning with. And obviously, there's subjugated people, but there are also people who aren't subjugated, but aren't also necessarily represented on stage. What are your thoughts on how people uh, in artistic director roles or executive director roles can encourage more representation on stage? Hmm. Well, um, like in my time at Rapid Fire, I really, at the time, my thinking was really around like gender uh and i'll say now that that's a limited view and that's not an intersectional view but that's that's where my mind was at was we need more women and that was also the word i knew at the time we need more women on stage was my thing i was just like we need to have shows that are all women we need to have a theater sports match that's all women that's not marketed as women's night or whatever it just needs to be normal normalized treat it like it's normal right yeah because it is (laughs) guess what world yeah totally. (laughs) if there's a team that's all uh aboriginal people that's not some weird thing like it's just normal because people are people and having people especially underrepresented people on stage is not some novelty totally normal thing yeah and uh at the time at rapid fire i was just like sick of the there was always this conversation around women in comedy that was like at the time which is now i guess like whatever 15 years ago that was like we want to have more women we just don't we just don't know where to find them and you know (laughs) and i was just like yeah your classes are uncomfortable for women they don't want to come um or maybe they're not interested because they go to see your shows and they don't see any women so i was just like i my approach was like let's just rip the band-aid off and cast a show that is you know gender pair in quotes or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um let's just do it. And, you know, it was also always like, oh, but those women don't have as much experience. They're not as good. And it's like, well, I don't care. They're good. They're going to get good by being on stage. Like who cares? And so as if any of those people saying that were, you know, what they consider good, they did like, as if they met their bar when they first were regularly performing. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, I've, I've been in just in touch with a number of organizations and that's always the discussion around representation is like, oh, people aren't ready yet. We just need to, you know, we need more development. Development is great. We do need development. But for me, I was like, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's get it going. And um, so I think in terms of representation, like obviously, yes, it's it's having folks on stage, getting folks on stage, adding them to the ensemble, but it's also creating ensembles that feel safe, that, and you need to have representation that runs all the way through the organization on the artistic staff, on the board, in the you know workshop instructors, it, it has to go through the whole organization. Uh-huh. And then from there, I think, you know, once, once those people are there, we also need to be aware of who speaks the most, 
who uses who has the most airtime on stage who yeah because i know for me uh coming up it was always like i'm on stage i am quote unquote representing a woman on stage but i'm talking a tenth of the time like <laughs> my scene partner is talking most of the time so the, all those things they they all kind of yeah once once we do one of them then there's always so much more to do to think about you know how can we encourage um folks to be in positions of power who speaks the most who gives the notes who makes the decisions all that stuff mm -hmm. i think is um yeah is kind of representation 2.0 or whatever <laughs> for sure i think a big issue for some people too is just not liking change you know they might be all for representation on stage but then they start seeing oh but then maybe i won't get as much stage time or mm -hmm. maybe my favorite show or favorite team will get cut and change and they just don't like that change and mm -hmm. i don't think there's uh, a way to move forward and then also address those problems people have sometimes they just have to suck it up unfortunately but um you know there are ways to appease people in a in a widespread way at theaters. There's seven days a week. When we when we are truly past COVID, it'll be a little bit easier to do seven nights a week and multiple shows a night. But with that much time, you can really get a lot of different people on stage. And I I think um, you know while some people may not be able to enjoy a weekly performance. Uh, that's it's all for the better in, in the long term, it seems like. Mm hmm. I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, that's a scarcity mentality to be like, oh, I have to I have to lose something for someone else to get something. And on yeah. some level that that may be true. You know, I I um I think there's power in like getting invited to a show asking who else is on the show and then being like, actually, I don't think you should have me on the show. I think you should, you know, invite an indigenous person or a black person to do the show instead of me mm -hmm. because it's all, it's an all white show. And that's like a mm. power that we have as uh, for me as like a white person, white cis gendered woman is to be like, I happily give up my spot for someone else because I don't know, I've had how many shows have I had in my life? And there's, there's no shortage of them. Right. Improv right, shows, right. improv shows, you could be doing 12 improv shows a week before the pandemic <laughs> for free yeah. and not, not being compensated for them. But um, yeah. like, I don't know. I'm like, there's no shortage of improv shows. Right. They're, they're made up, they're imagined. We can do them anywhere. Right. We can do them in any right. space, any bar. Like, <laughs> for sure. Why are we holding on to them so tightly? And and I think it's just like it's 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 power. Sometimes people say mm -hmm. it's money. You know, I I make my fifty bucks at my show or whatever. I'm like, you can make fifty bucks elsewhere doing too. other things. Like it's not about the fifty bucks. It's about feeling like you are owed that space. And yeah, you know, I think in yielding that, there's there's such a freedom in being like, oh, I oh, it's just another show. Like, who yeah. cares? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like when people talk about, like, this is a big thing in America that I'm sure is annoying for people from other countries to hear as much as it is for me to hear, but people will talk about freedom and 
oh, if they get this, it's like, you know, taking freedom away from me. And it's it, freedom is something that anyone can enjoy. And you're not losing any for someone else to have more freedom or to not be uh, subjugated. It's just and, unless you think freedom is subjugating other people, in which case I think you have a wrong understanding of what freedom is. And it's the same with this. It's like it's time and it, time is kind of endless and made mm. up. It's just the way we observe things passing. Mm. But, you know, you're still going to get your stage time somewhere, somehow. Yeah. And also, like, as 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 a white woman, it's like I gain a lot from sitting back and watching a show where maybe people I've never seen perform before or folks I haven't seen represented on stage before perform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to be on stage with those folks too, I get to learn a lot and experience a lot of different things. And I, I think as improvisers, we want to be curious about everything. You know, mm-hmm. we should be curious about what it's like to sit back and watch a show. Like, I don't know. I hope lots of improvisers go and just sit down and watch a show, but I know a lot of them don't. <laughs> I know I don't as much <laughs> as I should. Um, but it, it's, I don't know. I do think it's essential to stay stay curious and be like, yeah, what would it be like to, I don't know, hang back in the scene? Right. What would it be like to yield, give space, be aware of the group? Does that person look like they're having fun? All that stuff. So yeah, that's what I think. I a hundred percent agree. Uh, that is all like what sitting and watching the show or being on stage and, and, uh, stepping back and, and seeing how someone else takes something. Um, you talked about something that's somewhat separate, you, you, or you mentioned, you referenced something that's somewhat separate from this topic of observing and saying, is that person having fun? If you are on a show and you're standing on the sidelines and you see someone in the scene who doesn't seem to be having fun, how do you address that? Mm, that's a great question. I think I try to be really aware of who, I, not about stage time, but about who has had their like imprint on the show, like who, you know, in the in the concrete has put their their handprint on the show. And I look around and I go like, oh, we haven't really seen like a shiny moment uh, for Jason. So, you know, whether that's like, I don't know, endowing you and bringing you on stage for a scene or whether that's um, narrating you into a monologue or um, I don't know, something or coming up on stage and and maybe just doing a different scene but trying to make the content something that i know that maybe would excite you and maybe you'd want to join um those are some ideas but yeah i think um i had a group last night actually uh it was our first student show back with the school that i teach at in vancouver called blind tiger comedy and um we had our first student show back and i have this great long form class they're they're amazing Um, and backstage, I was like, just focus on like that imprint idea. Like, let's just make sure everyone has a shiny moment and whether they take it themselves or whether they're, you know, given that, um, let's just make sure that happens. And they totally did it. And I was just so like happy. And some of them are, you know, some of them are improvisers who are like supporters who hang back, who want to analyze before they jump in. And some of them are those people that are like, would just be center stage the whole time if given the opportunity. Um, but they found this like sweet spot of being able to balance it. And I feel like that's when improv is at its best. That's when it really feels like an ensemble versus just kind of like every person for themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. What sort of things, this is a very random question. 
but there are certain things that you always kind of hear about when people talk about issues on stage, you know, with someone who is steamrolling or, or hogging and stuff like that. That seems relatively addressed. But what sort of new things are not maybe addressed as much that are, um, you know, not as helpful for improv? I don't, I'm trying to not say wrong or bad, but mm. just not as helpful. Well, I'm really curious. I'm really curious about this question. Even even the idea of steamrolling, I'm like, I used to perform with this improviser in Edmonton who's a brilliant person, like whose mind mm -hmm. just just works faster than mine. I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. They're just so good at narrative, connecting ideas, character. And I found my best tactic with them was to try and surprise them. Like, uh, because they could be, they could puppet master a whole show, you know, they, they could really like direct it from the inside. And my best tactic with them was just to be like, monkey wrench them, say something that surprises them, throw them off. And then you could actually <laughs> see them like kind of come to life, like in their eyes, oh, it would be like, you know, now we're off track. We're not going along with your plan. Um, and these questions of that, like the moment to moment, how we, how we deal with stuff on stage, I think. Ooh, they're just some of the most exciting questions uh, to explore. <laughs> um, like, uh, you know, stuff like interrupting comes up a lot mm -hmm. where a student might be like, I just can't get a word in edgewise. I just keep getting yeah. interrupted. And there's some, you know, all these different tactics that we can kind of like um, come up with together, like pause for a really long time. See if they just burn themselves out. <laughs> um, uh, I, I one thing that I use a lot, and I, I I I've used it a lot in like what I would call like tricky situations where I'm like, oh my gosh, even the audience is like not not loving this, is like narration. And I know that oh. it's you know it doesn't live in the style of of all improv theaters, but to be like. Right. And they talked through the night and time <laughs> passed. And, and that character, you know, they went to bed. Like you can absolutely like bend space and time and improv. So sometimes to navigate our, our way out of stuff, we can, that's a great tool that I love. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah. I I've know. heard some really fun, silly things like that before too, where uh, there was some, I think this was something that uh, Beer Shark Mike's did where someone was, uh, it seemed like someone didn't understand what another improviser was doing. So that other improviser said, Hey, and he said the person's name. He's like, can I talk to you over here for a second? Yeah. And they, like, they acted like they, they stepped out of the scene. Mm. They're like, Hey, when I said this, did you understand what I meant? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh no, I thought you meant this. It's like, okay, no, 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 no. I mean this. It's like, oh, okay, let's get back in the scene. Yeah. It was super funny that I, I didn't see that. I, someone told me about it. I just thought what a delightful way to address <laughs> a hang up in a scene. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think um, that's a great one too, right? Like breaking breaking the scene and being like, Jason, do you really feel that way about me? That thing you just said to me? Oh my gosh. No, no, I was I was talking as the character. <laughs> oh, okay. And even that like dispels that for the audience. They're like, okay, good. You yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. And we can also do that from inside the character, right? We can have commentary mm -hmm. from the improviser that comes outside, comes from the character. And... Mm -hmm. Like all of those tactics, I, I think are so important for, you know, anyone who, you know, is marginalized in quotes right. again to know, because it's like, 
I, I'm a big believer that everyone has agency on stage and everyone should leave the stage with their dignity intact. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we, we, we all can use those tools however we need to, to, to have those two things, to have agency and to be able to leave with, with our dignity intact. So, right. so whether, whether that destroys the, you know, the reality of the scene and our teacher might be like, Hey, like, you destroyed the reality of the scene. Who cares? I don't care. Um, I, I, want <laughs> right. you to, I want you to leave the show feeling like, yeah, I did what I needed to do to like tell the audience that I'm okay and that they're okay. Uh -huh. And that by coming, right. by coming to this show, they're, they're okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, there have been times when I was doing a scene where I think everyone knew I was making a joke, but it was one of those things where it was like, but what if he's not was sort of lingering in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And so we all got through it. And the teacher was like, well, uh, when you do a, a, a joke, a gag like that, or a bit like that in a scene, just let everyone know where you're coming from and, and sort of address it from, from within that way. And I thought, Oh, I didn't know that was allowed, you know, or, or even like fully breaking the scene and, mm -hmm. and stepping out of it for a second. You know, you just think, oh, I didn't know we could do that. I I was just kind of caught in the scene for a moment there for the rest of the scene because I didn't know how to address that issue. And it's like, well, it's a creative endeavor. You can be creative. You don't have to follow these rules to a T because we are just trying to have fun with each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it's that's... not like I put a, a door in a certain space and someone just acted like a door wasn't there. We're talking <laughs> about like how we're interacting with each other. Yeah. And I've been um, so uh, John Gibertatios from Huge Theater. Um, mm -hmm. He kind of brought to our school this idea of just saying time out. So whether oh, yeah, if yeah. you're in a scene or on stage or even if you're just having a conversation as a class and someone says time out, it's just kind of like a moment where. I like to think of it as like your intuition is just telling you, I don't know about this. Like this is something's mm -hmm. not right here. It's a bit icky. Um, and in that moment, you can either say pass, like, can we just change the let's do a new scene or let's um, change the topic or whatever, or or you can debrief it with your group. But, you know, learning improv and growing up, I never was taught to that we have an opportunity to just go like, I'm I'm good. I don't want to do this scene anymore or like time out right. or. Th those just weren't tools that were kind of taught to us. And so oh yeah, I feel like, you know, a lot of improvisers from my generation and older are kind of like, no, you have to like work through it, work, you know, like, oh, figure it out, like work through it in the scene. There's value mm. maybe in, you know. <laughs> it's case by case, you know, if, if someone feels attacked, then maybe working it, working it out in the scene isn't the best method there yeah. maybe that's something they need to talk about after the show yeah um but if it is something where it's like wait are you making fun of conservatives or are you just doing what they're doing mm -hmm. <laughs> which then is a problem it seems like you're making fun of them but i just want confirmation that's the thing to work out in the scene you know mm -hmm. if someone's doing some sort of archie bunker thing where they're being offensive to point out how ridiculous it is to be that way, mm -hmm. then work that out in the scene. But um, even then, sometimes it could get dicey. For sure. And I think um, one thing I've just been really trying to explore in myself, but also encouraging my students to explore is like, is it, 
is it scary because you've never done improv like this before? Is it scary because it's kind of scary, exciting? You know, there's a lot of fear in improv, so we don't need to stop every scene where something feels like, oh, I'm a bit afraid. But right. it's like, is this challenging, you know, your agency or your dignity? Or is this making you feel icky? Then, then we just don't need to do it. And people right. have, you know, everyone's different. People have different right. tolerance for that. And yep. I think the audience can really tell when folks go into that, like, icky scared zone where it's like, yeah. I'm, sh I'm shutting down. I'm not making eye contact with my partner. I'm mm -hmm. like diminishing my body language. We don't, right. we don't need to see that. And mm -hmm. like, it just makes the audience uncomfortable too. And I, I think back to like, so many instances in my you know younger improv career where it's just like watching it and no one knows what to do and you're just like ah. yeah. Um, yeah yeah so just having some more language and some more tools around that i think makes everyone feel more um yeah more confident and just being like yes yeah, yeah. stuff's gonna come up that's never gonna stop coming up and I, I i believe you can do improv about about any topic as long as everyone's being taken care of and feels comfortable and um you know is taking care of the audience too and so absolutely yeah, yeah. we're only going to get there by uh, trial and error but if if the spirit is always to like take care of each other and um mm -hmm. and also be accountable when we screw up yeah absolutely because you know? that's a big trust thing i mean i've seen I've, I've had experiences in class well i guess i didn't directly have an experience i just have seen in classes where somebody was sort of ignoring what the room was feeling and what their scene partners were feeling about something being too far. And they just sort of plowed through either they were oblivious or they didn't have a problem with the fact that everyone was uncomfortable. And that was sort of like, well, I just don't know how to trust you if you didn't realize that mm -hmm. and you didn't care about that, you know, and it, and if it gets called out and they just sort of, brush it off and shrug their shoulders and it's like then I really don't trust you to handle sensitive material or me being vulnerable with you in a scene mm -hmm. uh, it, it's it is a an important thing for everyone to sort of know hey here are things that can come up and you have recourse for mm -hmm. handling it even in the scene and and giving people tools really is empowering it doesn't slow things down it actually will speed things up mm-hmm and I think we're like, you know, we're working in an art form where people are in like adrenaline mode and like kind of fight or flight mode a lot. And the more you train, hopefully the more you're able to like breathe and yeah. <laughs> actually pay attention and be in the moment. But, you know, I saw a bunch of students go up for the first time last night. It's like they're not breathing. They're not making eye contact. They're just like they're having this like verbal diarrhea and like yeah, I don't know, stuff's gonna happen. And as long as they're like able afterwards to debrief it, understand, understand what happened, how they were a part of that, whether you know, if that's a problem, and then kind of take it from there. I think, yeah, we're in a much better place than like, not talking about it, muscling through yeah. <laughs> all the old ways. Yeah, this has been brilliant to talk about with you. But I do want to talk about festivals, because you have run a couple of festivals mm -hmm. while you were at Rapid Fire. You mentioned earlier Bonfire, but there was also Improvaganza. And mm -hmm. recently you have done the Vancouver Improv Festival. 
Yeah. How does trying to build equity and have representation play into running a festival? Great question. Yeah, I um I feel super lucky to be able to um, help organize the Vancouver Improv Festival, and it's I started in twenty. Well, I started kind of shadowing in twenty eighteen, and then I took over in twenty nineteen. Oh boy, yeah, and then I got to experience yeah. the whole pandemic. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and we just had our festival in October, and it was kind of like a hybrid. We had some in person and some um, online stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say. Uh, in terms of equity, I don't know. I'm just like, let's let's have a diverse festival. Like, let's have diverse instructors. Um, let's bring. We we always have applications, and part of that is I think it's important to have some kind of process where people can apply, so that um, you can you know learn about new groups that maybe you didn't know about before. Um, mm -hmm. But I also think there's a balance, and I think that as a festival organizer, you're allowed, if you don't get what you need in your applications, you're allowed to be like, well, I know this great group, um, you know, from wherever I'm going to bring them out because we need them. We want them. Mm -hmm. They're amazing. Um, and so I think being transparent about that in, in your processes, you know, whether that's on your application, how, how do decisions get made? What are, what are the, um, lenses you're looking through in terms of um, putting together your program um, and also trying to be as transparent as possible about payment and about honorariums mm. and about travel which i know a lot of festivals don't have the luxury of of having a ton of money to to pay out to artists but that's something i really think is important and i i mean i would i i, I do believe running a smaller festival and giving the artists more to do, but being able to like pay their airfare, pay them a small honorarium, it just creates, um, I don't know, for me, that's that's where my taste lies, where I'm like, I'd rather see like a duo do two or three shows, maybe guest on a jam show and then um, teach some workshops, then have them come out for one show and not pay them. <laughs> like yeah. it's just not uh not a model that i really uh yeah think is cool and i know for myself mm -hmm. like when i when i've been touring to festivals my favorite festivals are the ones where they're like we'll pick you up at the airport and we'll take you to your hotel that we paid for and we'll just make you feel like you're really needed and welcomed here and i think that's part of also you know creating a festival with representation and that includes a lot of people making those people feel cared for and welcomed um rather than being like get into the <laughs> from the airport on your own and yeah. find your own billet and we're not going to pay you it's like okay <laughs> <laughs> and also i i read where you one of the suggestions you had was to have someone you like pick them up because you don't want some you don't want to just say like hey who will do it because then sometimes you can get a problematic person who's unaware that sure. they uh, uh, give off the vibe, the unsettling vibe that they give off. Yeah. Um, but they love the theater and they love the community and everyone needs community, um, whether they are uh, creepy or not. Um, yeah. You know, some some people are harmless, but if they're creepy and harmless, it's still creepy. For sure. And uh, <laughs> but those people, those people kind of need the community more than anybody. So you don't want to mm -hmm. push them out. But maybe you don't have that person. Uh, 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 picking someone up and who knows what happens and how they unsettle someone. Yeah, you know, I think you, you know, talking about trust, it's like, 
you can think about that on stage and then you can, you know, zoom out and think about that in terms of your whole event and be like, and it's hard, you know, when we're um, financially, we don't have what we need to do what we want to do. But, you know, being like, who do I trust to host this show? You know, uh, if we if we have, you know, some performers of color, there's a great group here in Vancouver called Fistful of Kicks. They're an all Asian ensemble that are like amazing. It's like, and has a great name. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, who do we trust to host this show? I'm not going to put like someone who I think might say something problematic in that role. Like mm -hmm. you, you, you want to trust everyone on every level of the organization, ideally, you can't control it, but you know, you want to bring care and awareness to kind of all those choices as best you can. And then, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. when the thing inevitably does happen, <laughs> you gotta like address it, which is always really hard to be like, Hey, it wasn't cool when you said that in your hosting role. And they're yeah. like, I'm doing it for free. And you're like, I know, <laughs> like, I wish, <laughs> Oh, I don't know. It's uh, it's not easy, but it's um, I think the more of an expectation there is that um, a festival can can take care of the people it brings out, the better. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. Hmm, I mean, I guess that I'm doing it for free thing that goes back to taking responsibility for what you've done. You know, essentially, guys, stop bringing women up on stage saying the next comic is a woman. <laughs> totally. Uh, that's annoying. Um, yeah. That's annoying. <laughs> Even to me as a cisgender male, I find it annoying. So mm -hmm. imagine what a woman thinks. <laughs> <laughs> so don't do it anymore. Uh, well, this has been a great chat. It's now time to create something together. Mm. And I, I'd love to do improv. Um, I know that could be tough over Zoom, but um, I'd like to... Um, I feel like a lot of what we've talked about is like taking care of each other in a mm. scene. So um, I, I'd be interested to see how that plays out. Uh, and I don't know what your uh, favorite way to get a suggestion is. Do you have a, a particular thing that you like to do or, or, or suggestion you like to get? Mm. I always like to ask for my duo partner, Jolene, and I always like to ask for like an evocative image. Ooh, an evocative image. Image. So it could be like we had, what do we have before? We've had like a willow tree over a pond or we've had a tiger in a cage or just kind of a snapshot of something. We've had a, like someone like jumping from building to building. Mm. Okay. Those are big ideas. Um, <laughs> a word is also fine. <laughs> no, no, I like it. I want to think, of, I want to get an evocative image in someone's <laughs> mind. Um how about you're walking across the street and a car tries to turn too fast Ooh. and that look on the person's face when they look at the car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hmm. That was, that was unsettling. <sighs> I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to, to say that. <laughs> no, no. Um, it's clear to me I that mean, how... it's clear to me that you didn't. You didn't agree. <laughs> I just think, I, I just think that the Beatles are better than Rolling Stones. I just, <laughs> and I, you know, yeah. it's like they're both great, but like, come on. No, come on, Mick. He's skinny, oh, he's, he's skinny and he's wearing tight pants, and he's doing his and dance. And he still can do that. Yeah, I get it. 
I get it, but you know, the Beatles. Okay. They well, have... Let's talk about Ringo. Let's talk about it. You like okay? you like Ringo? You think he's a good drummer? <laughs> he's look, hey, he may not be as skilled as a Keith Moon or a Steve Jordan, okay? He's not on time the way some are necessarily, but he created a backbeat that is pretty influential. <laughs> so let's not let's not throw him under the bus. Okay, but what about the Ringo songs? Okay, what what about I believe Yellow Submarine, Octopus's Garden? They're just they're children's songs, you know? Put them on a I mean Okay, fine, but his solo stuff, uh, <laughs> he had a couple of bangers. They didn't call him that then, Oh, but they were. He had a solo album? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you don't even know. Uh, I mean, how are we talking about uh, the merits of music and you don't know that he had solo albums, uh, uh, plural? Yes. Could I get another latte, please? Yeah. Oh yes. Um, can you actually? I would like another latte, but can you put a can you put a little rum in it? Because I'm gonna need it. <laughs> oh. Well, I, I haven't heard his solo albums. Uh, to well, be honest. Okay. Uh, well, you know, Spotify. You might want to Spotify some Ringo. And and just understand how legit he actually was. I guess I had it all wrong. I'll uh, I'll go check those out. <laughs> oh, great! Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. You really slurp when you when you sip. Just wanted to get the foam. <laughs> I just no, I just wasn't expecting that. Um, can I get a second shot of rum? <laughs> <laughs> Great. I think that's a perfect ending. <laughs> yeah, I I imagine that scene took place at two in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, some kind of bougie cafe for sure. <laughs> there it is. That was super fun. Thanks for playing with me and being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was lovely chatting with you. It was lovely chatting with Amy, too. I hope you enjoyed that. She teaches improv in person and online with Blind Tiger Comedy. Go to blindtigercomedy.ca and follow them on Instagram at BT Comedy. Her improv group, Little Mountain Improv, performs every Tuesday in Vancouver. Follow them on Instagram at Little Improv. Vancouver Improv Festival happens every fall, and they hope to be able to accept international applications in 2022. Go to Vancouver Improv fest.com and at vancouver improv fest on instagram for more info we will also be keeping you up on fest info in our festival blog and our newsletter go to there it is pod.com for info on festivals our newsletter and more links in bio follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at there it is pod until next time be good to each other the music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.